This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Well, who? Barbara Cohen. Barbara Cohen, okay, at the Austin Zen Center. And then uh, was Shuso here in 2010? And Dharma transmitted with Kosho in 2014. Um, I had a chance to practice with Colin at Tassajara from about 2008 to 2010 um, and really appreciated his um, quiet, steady, and focused um, practice and presence there. Um, so we're really happy to have Colin back and uh, welcome Colin. Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear okay and back? I can never tell from up here. Thank you, Tim. That's the most generous description of myself I've ever heard. (laughs) And I wish it were true. (laughs) So for any new folks who are here today, welcome. And may you find your Dharma family and your practice here, as I did you know, almost 20 years ago uh, at the Austin Zen Center. As some of you have heard me say ad nauseum, there's always an element of kind of coming home whenever I come up to give a talk and, uh, from, from San Antonio. So a number of years ago, uh, I was given a ticket to uh, an event at the Pearl, in San Antonio, and it was a a presentation on mindfulness. And there there were two people presenting. One was uh, a psychologist, and then the other was... uh, The guy was from some organization, I can't exactly remember, but they were telling us... It was a a lunch presentation, so we were all eating lunch while they were telling us about mindfulness. So for the next hour, I got to hear a lot of theory about what mindfulness was. And at some point during the talk, um, one of the people reached into a, a cooler that was up on the that was up on the table reached in and pulled out a human brain. So everyone with food in their mouths just froze. (laughs) So I believe it had the unfortunate effect that everyone had forgotten what came before that and what was said afterwards. (laughs) Um, So a lot of this one when we first become interested in Buddhism or Zen or practice, we often start out as bedside Buddhists, what are called bedside Buddhists. We have the, the books, the stack of books next to the bedside table at night. And we start, oh, that's really good, yeah. That's true because I know it's true. <laughs> you know. Um, but we don't really practice, at least in my experience, with very few exceptions, we don't really start practice until we've suffered enough. 
until we're ready to throw in the towel and say, okay, this reading is not practice. I, I realize that I, if I've got to find, I've got to, uh, this is where the rubber meets the road. And really the difference uh, between practicing and reading about practice is the difference between driving a car and pushing it. um, The only thing that's in common is there's a car involved. Um, So in this way, um, reading can really end up being a hindrance to, you know, when we mistake reading for practice, it becomes a hindrance that we're not actually practicing. We're just reading about practice. So I wanted to, to talk about the five hindrances. And the chant that we just did a few minutes ago, the Shosaimyoki Jijio Dharani, is a chant for removing hindrances. At Tasahara, you alternate between the Shosaimyoki Jijio Dharani and the Enmei Juku Kanengyo. So uh, one morning you're removing hindrances, the next morning you're chanting for the well-being and the end of suffering of all beings. So uh, we take removal of the hindrances and the addressing and removal of hindrances quite seriously. And uh, the five hindrances are, are, if you're not familiar with them, are sense desire, and uh, malice and ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and then finally doubt. So these hindrances that I'm going to be speaking about are commonly, we, th- we think about them uh, in the... In the practice sense of anything that keeps us from practice, keeps us from paying attention, from being aware, from mindfulness, from meeting people, from engaging in practice. But this being the Mahayana school, it goes a lot more than that. It's about what is it that keeps us from living our life? What is it that uh, prevents us from seeing the suffering of the world? Or our own suffering in that case. So sense desire is one of the biggies. One of the biggies. Uh, Usually includes sight, sound, smell, taste, physical feelings, but not specifically touch. It might be if we can really get addicted to the, for those of us that have lived where it's quite cold, there's there's a very delicious feeling about having a hot beverage hitting your stomach in February in Michigan. You know, so I mean, that's definitely a sense, a sense pleasure that we get attracted to, um, and it also can include our mind. For instance, um, when Robert, is that you, when you were talking about the uh, uh, American in Paris, I noticed greed arise in me because it combines my favorite dancer with my favorite city. My my niece refers to Gene Kelly as my man crush. (laughs) So, oh, got to watch that part of my brain light up. Ah, Gene Kelly. Hmm. Can I make it? Can I make it? 
to the exclusion of everything else. Like, like, oh, I have to give a talk in a few minutes, but can I, can I schedule it so I can get to the Paramount at 2.30 to see Gene Kelly? Uh, happiness can definitely uh, be a sense, uh, a sense desire that we can get addicted to. The commercials all tell us we should be happy if we just buy that we will and that we will be if we buy their product. All of our suffering will be removed with that seventy-five thousand dollar Lexus or a specific brand of soda. It must be true because they say it's so, right? So whenever something pleasurable arises, um, our instinct is to grab, to grab on. And even, uh, as my understanding is that even single-cell organisms both uh, possess the the, uh, ability to grab on to and push away. So uh, this is nothing new that we experience. So malice and ill will. That's an intense one. That is a very intense hindrance. And the way it's often thought of is it can be a form of rejection, whether we are rejecting or whether we are being rejected. A sense of ill will arises one way or the other, whether we feel rejected or whether we are rejecting others. And this ill will includes hostility, resentments, and bitterness. The danger with talking about these hindrances is it can, uh, after a while, it's really easy to start feeling bummed out. You know, but I will be talking about some antidotes uh, for this that we can that we can utilize as well too. However, we have to talk about the hindrances because as the saying goes, the devil you know is the better than the one that you don't. So it, it's really helpful to know when uh, we're operating under the influence of the ego and whenever it's trying to assert itself in our lives. So malice and ill will, it hinders ease. It hinders our ability to be at ease and to live an easeful life, to be content. Uh, And the embodiment of that in American literature is Moby Dick. We have the malice and ill will of Ahab toward the white whale and vice versa. um, We think think it may be about a lost leg, it's about wrath, revenge, yeah. and uh, spoiler alert: it doesn't tend to end well. The you know. so sloth and torpor is the third hindrance, and that's when we experience heaviness of body and dullness of mind. 
so it really pulls us toward depression, uh, towards inertia and depression. Uh, has its roots kind of like in, in in laziness, right? Of like, oh yeah, thousands at five forty. Uh, I should really go, and then it's five forty, and we're still sitting there. And once we begin to lay that pattern down of particularly making excuses not to do something or to, uh, it can really begin to weigh on us and it begins driving the bus rather than us saying, oh yes, there's actually something very important that my body responds to when I come and sit. So, so it's really actually really important to remember that in that in that moment. So it also shows up as complacency. Um, there was one teacher at San Francisco Zen Center, she'd been practicing for I think around twenty five or thirty years and then realized at one point that she had been cruising for quite a while. Just, you know, showing up in, in the Zendo, sitting down and and then just following into a comfortable routine and not, uh, not really being completely present in her practice. I would also say that uh, with this complacency, and I'm speaking specifically re- regarding making an effort to come and sit, the uh, the sloth and torpor aspect of it, the complacency aspect of it, is taking the presence of a Zen center or a, or a practice place for granted. Right, so we, we may we don't live in a temple. We may say, "Oh, uh, I'll go next week." or it's always been my intention to, to go or to get back. And this is on the assumption that things are permanent. That a practice place will always be there for us. That this building will always be here. Or San Antonio's Zen Center. Or San Francisco's Zen Center will be there. So, uh, what's as important, if not more important, and financial donation to small temples as your zazen donation. Because this is how we support each other. This is how we take care of each other, by coming and sitting together, sitting next to each other, and sitting in silence in the most intimate way that we can't even really begin to fathom. That, can, that assures the continuity of a place, particularly if we want to practice together. It can be a, it can be a bit of a challenge if we don't have that. We have to start a meetup group or something like that and say, "Hey, let's meet at the coffee shop and sit for a while." Who's going to pay for? Who's going to pay for the group? Uh, so it's it really it's really complicated. But it's really important to take care of our take care of our practice and take care of the place that where we practice. Uh, 
So restlessness and worry is another good one. When we first bought this building, we were still at the old West Avenue location. Um, I was the first resident here. I was the, the caretaker. And I was living in the house by myself because we hadn't moved operations yet. And so we had a, I think it was a, a two-day sitting at the old West Avenue location. And I was sitting there and was pouncing off the walls. Like, I've got all this stuff to do here that I really need to be doing because we're, we're going to try to open in August. And got a lot of painting to do, a lot of repair work to do. So what I was experiencing was an inability to calm my mind. So for the most part of a day of the two-day sitting, I was jittery and bored, restless. And it definitely hindered my mental ease. Uh, quite a lot of monkey mind. So the restlessness and worry just keeps us in a state of agitation. And then there's the old saying, don't just, uh, don't just do something, sit there, which is usually what's required. I think there's a line in Lawrence of Arabia where somebody says, well, what do we do now? And he says, well, nothing. It's usually the best thing. You know? so. Doubt is usually the one, is, is one of the ones that trips people up the most. Has anyone here experienced doubt? Sure. Maybe a few. You know. <laughs> There's some invisible hands going up as well, too. So doubt is defined as a lack of conviction, trust, uh, sustained consideration. That's the formal way of looking at it. One of the best stories I heard was Katagiri Roshi was apparently, he was describing... Uh, in a, I think in a Dharma talk, uh, he had been sitting in, in, in Zazen, uh, and this, this thought came into his head, is this all I'm going to do? I'm just going to sit here, you know, for the rest of my life? It's a, it's a thought, you know, just knowing it's a thought. The analogy that's often used for doubt, which I think is quite uh, compelling, is being lost in a desert with no landmarks. So we don't know which way to turn. All we know is up is up and down is down. And if we're in a desert long enough, I'm sure that even becomes questioned after a while. The antidotes for sense desire are just meditating on the impermanence. I can go to a Gene Kelly movie and just really be wrapped up in it. And, uh, and I have to remember, even though when my brain is lighting, oh yeah, well, you know, and then this scene happens and that scene happens and then that's the end of the movie and I'm going to have to go on and no more Gene Kelly. So just remembering 
when we have the sense desire, when there's something that we most want to hold on to, that that isn't permanent. It's kind of like when you have the dream and there's something that's so coveted, you finally get your hands on it and then you wake yourself up because you're grabbing onto it so tightly. It's very much like that. that there's, there's actually nothing to grab onto. And then just the act of trying to grab onto this thing that doesn't actually exist other than uh, chemical in the brain. It's going to cause us a lot of suffering because we want that feeling back. And it's actually one of the things I most appreciate about Zen that I've always appreciated about Zen is uh, I'm not trying to sell you an experience. I'm so grateful that I'm not a charismatic because I've seen how much they suffer and I've seen how much uh, how many difficulties there can be around around that particularly for the, the disciples or the students of someone who's charismatic so uh, what you hear and see is what you get with me you know I'm really not interested in being nice. I'm not interested in being kind. But I'm not interested in being mean. I'm just interested in showing up. That's all I'm interested in. And that actually is, uh, goes a long way towards kind of letting those sense desires, trying to, to get something from people or to invoke something in people. Let's that go. So that way people don't have to tell me what they think I want to hear. Does that make sense? So ill will and malice, the antidote for ill will and malice is the third chant we did today, the loving kindness. taking on the practice of metta for, for all beings, without exception, without exception. Right? All beings includes you, and you, and you. There is no one that all beings does not include. So we're never saying in the Bodhisattva vow, when we say, I vow to save all beings, we're not saying I vow to save all other beings. We're saying I have to turn this loving kindness towards myself as well too. Which is, uh, can be one of the biggest challenges of all. One of the best things is actually just to feel the pain of the ill will. Just to really let it land. Stop directing it out. And just feel the, the pain of the origin. Right? When we're acting out, or someone is acting out, it's not because we or they are happy. Things are going well. It's because there's a lot of suffering involved. So we, it's, we really need to see that, to acknowledge that. Another way is the word respect. Literally, the word respect breaks down to looking again. So if we're, if we're experiencing ill will towards someone, 
something, some empty boat. We can look again and say, is this, is this really true? The anger I feel is real, but is the story I have really real? So we get a chance to, to look again, to look again, to not go on our first instinct or our first instinct. Tim may have mentioned this before, but one of the things that uh, you do at Tassahara, the summer students, actually, during the summer students and during practice periods, is whenever you meet each other on the path, you stop and you bow. And you do it regardless of, of your relationship with the person. So it doesn't matter if it's someone you like or don't like. We have to give up our stick, stiff neck and bow, literally making ourselves vulnerable. Right, exposing the back of our neck. There's something so wonderful about that. Just you know, really faking it till you make it. Right, because you know we may be going down and bowing and saying you so and so and so and so and so and so, but we're still we're st- we're still bowing. We're still getting it into our into our body. Or they may be saying, you so and so and so on. And, and in, in, in California, they're usually quite happy to let you know about it, you know, and, uh, and talk with you about it at length. <laughs> so the antidote for sloth and torpor is rousing energy. Rousing energy. One of the ways that we often re- feel it when we're sitting is sleepiness. I mean, it's been many times where we, particularly after a meal, we're sitting there doing our little nod. It becomes like a spell after a while. Particularly during session, you've just had the cookie. You have your little tea treat in the afternoon and the carbs are hitting. You got the carb crash going on. Um, and Zazen, uh, a couple of things that I've heard is one is to raise your eyes, just level, just open them up, raise them level until you feel the sleepiness go away. Uh, some folks often advocate even putting your attention in the in the third eye. That also rouses energy as well, too. For me, I found what I find most helpful is remembering my intention. If it's my intention to stay awake in Zazen, I'll keep working on that. Or if, if it's my intention to show up, I need to show up. I need to show up to the very best of my ability, whether it's imperfect, just to show up, to be there. Thirty, thirty-six years ago, this October, there was a bombing in Lebanon in which 241 Marines and Navy personnel were killed. 
And my job at that time, I was in the Honor Guard. And we had to go to Dover, Delaware, which is the largest morgue on the East Coast, to uh, prepare to receive the bodies that were coming in. Uh, bodies were first flown to Germany and then to Dover. <clears throat> so in, in the meantime... To keep us busy and out of trouble, they put us on working parties. Those are the two most dreaded words in the Marine Corps' working party. Because uh, usually it was some job that you knew you were going to hate. <clears throat> so what they had us doing <clears throat> was preparing the uniforms for the bodies. So um, we're putting the, particularly the blouses, the dress blue blouses. Um, and there's a lot of nooks and crannies because um, the buttons aren't sewn on. There's a loop on the back and there's a little hoop that goes through it. So we were in this room smelling very strongly of formaldehyde, just preparing all these dress blue blouses. And uh, in, in the beginning, I was really bored. It was just tedious. Uh, and when you're doing that many blouses, your fingertips start to hurt, you know, because you've just been dealing with these thin hoop, stiff hoop wires, uniform after uniform after uniform, over and over and over again. I was 19. You know, it's like, ah, I just want to go and get a beer or something like that. It was kind of my mentality at the time. But then the longer I started to do it, the more it shifted and became an offering. Because a lot of these uniforms were never going to be seen. They're never going to be seen. Um, there's probably a good many of the funerals would be closed casket. But that didn't matter. A lot of, uh, a few of the, the guys uh, and a few of the Marines in my barracks had known a few people who had been killed. So even though we were preparing these blouses for for bodies that weren't suitable for viewing. There was a way in which I was able, you know, like my, I didn't do it, my, my thinking was kind of transformed from this lazy torpor of not being present for the task that I was doing. And after a while, by the time that I had finished, by the time we had finished putting all the, the buttons on the blouses, um, been a big shift. It was an honor to have, to have been there to do it by the time. But I had to go through all of this, my whole story, and my resistance to the task at hand before 
I could come to that place. And that's what uh, what Slothin talked about. It's what we have to do. We have to come back and we have to be willing to see the process through. Be willing to see the period of zazen all the way through to the end. And we come out changed on the other side. So with restlessness, it's quieting the mind, learning to quiet the mind. We can develop contentment. Contentment with our lives, being grateful, being happy for all we have, even if it's not that, what did I say, $70,000 Lexus or something along those lines. Maybe we have a Civic, you know. Being happy with what we have, learning to, to accept what we have. Really taking it on, taking it on. Because if we, if we don't have contentment, like even if we got that expensive car, there's always something else that we need to have. So uh, it really helps just to be, to learn how to be content with our lives, with our practice, even if it doesn't even if it doesn't sound like what you read in the books, even if we don't have amazing experiences, we get to say, wow, I actually get to come sit. I get to enjoy this meal. I'm breathing. There are no, there are no end of things to be grateful for. So with, uh, with restlessness, practicing gratitude is a, is a big part of that. Someone that um, Tim and I know, uh, Brother David Steindelruss, teaches, he's a Benedictine monk who teaches on gratefulness. And someone asked him once what what the key to gratitude was, to gratefulness was. And he said, always be willing to let yourself be surprised. Just being willing to be surprised. Not taking anything for granted. So classically, the antidote for doubt is studying sutras. Another way that we can look at it is... uh, using doubt to look at doubt. So there's, there's two doubts. There's, there's the doubt of, um, that we talk about in Zen, the I don't know mind. But there's also the corrosive doubt that undermines our ability to practice, that undermines our ability to show up. That is a very real hindrance to us. So we can, we can look at, we can use doubt to look at doubt in so, wait a minute, is that really true? This doubt I have about practice, am I doubting practice or am I doubting me? When I first started practice, I had a lot of doubt. You know, it's like a, a river of it. Particularly when things got difficult. So I would 
He's sitting here in this room. In this room. Facing the wall. In the midst of Zazen or Sashin. Intense, crushing doubt. And then I would say, okay, so what are my options? I was never able to think of any. (laughs) I was never able to come up with a single option of what else to do. And that actually kept me in my seat and kept me coming back. There's a lot to be said for not having any options. You know, there's a lot to be said for it. The more options we have, the more, the more risk of paralysis we run. Because the grass is always going to be greener. Always going to be greener somewhere else. So we can also think about our commitment. Our commitment to practice. Very early on for me, uh, I recognized that the practice had made such a profound difference in my life that I wanted to be in a position to work and offer this practice to other people. And looking at the word commitment, you know, it's like to send with, to send with or to entrust. So we have the saying of free your mind and your butt will follow is very much the same thing. You know, once we free our mind, then we can send our butt with our mind. And we're like we're just all there. We're completely there. You know, we're not half-assing it anymore, we're whole-assing it. <laughs> just, we're just showing up completely. And whatever it looks like. So while we think about these hindrances as hindrances to samadhi or to being present in sasan, it's really about the totality of our life. Showing up moment by moment to whatever showing up moment by moment and to whomever showing up moment by moment. And if we're feeling aversion, to acknowledge that, to come back. Because really all these hindrances are about aversion. About aversion in some form or another, whether it's greed, having a preference for one thing over another, malice and ill will, restlessness, it's all about not being here. So the hindrances invite us to actually be here, to show up whenever we're feeling lazy about showing, about coming to Zazen. Yeah, that's right. I, I got to do this. Because this is what is going, uh, this knowledge is what is going to help us show up when we hit the hard times. Norman Fisher has a really amazing piece called Stages of Monastic Practice, which uh, it's on the internet. 
It takes it took me some searching to find it, but it's in it from an old Windbell article. And that's uh, all these cycles of of practice, not even just monastic practice, but of practice. So it's good to get to know these things because we are going to experience the longer we practice, the more we practice, the more we're going to experience various difficulties or obstacles in practice. So it's good to be able to recognize it when it shows up. So we have the so we have the, the tools with us to say, Oh, I think this is what I think this is what uh, restlessness looks like for me. You know, how, how do I want to, how do I want to meet that? How do I want to create ease in my mind? And some of us come over them over and over and over again. And that's what Norman talks about in his piece is that it's not a one and done. Right? We're always in the cycle practice. It's just our responses to it and our relationship matures to it over time. And that we come to it from a fresh view so that the next time we we meet one of these hindrances we have that much more experience and practice. We say, oh, I recognize this. I've been through this. I've been through this before. This is not my first rodeo. You know. And the reality is, we're human beings. We're going to experience these things whether we're practicing or not. So why not practice with it? Why not take on the practice? We're human beings. It's helpful to have health care. So we have a plan in place if we get sick. Right? So it's helpful to have a plan in place some knowledge in place so whenever these hindrances do show up because they will show up I haven't known anyone who didn't experience hindrances or suffering in one form or another that's the good news it really is the good news we are going to suffer right this is what keeps us alive and paying attention Remember, remembering our intention to end suffering being present for others being present for ourselves if there were no suffering if there were no suffering then we're you know we're just kind of toasting not challenged by anything and that doesn't mean that suffering is fun it's not something I, I recommend, but it's it's just part of the package. I haven't known anyone who's avoided it. The beauty is, is that yeah, we have tools. We have tools. If we didn't have tools, when you're trying to build a house and you don't have tools, you're just looking at a pile of lumber that's going to stay that way. But if you have tools, you can actually do something to, to create shelter. So that's what we do. The good news, we're going to suffer. The good news is we can work with it. We get this this precious opportunity in this very limited life uh, cycle 
to do something about it. And if we don't do something about it, we're just a brain in a cooler. You know, we're just, we're, we're just an object for someone else to look at. Right. So, thank you very much.